sermon in and of itself. Praise the Lord. Well, if you will, please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 11. And while you're doing that, um, it's great to see all of you here this morning. Um, we're entering into a, a new season, the Easter season. And um, as many of you know from our James study, we're at a time where this entire year we're going to be looking at um, this, why do I have my mask on still? I'm so used to having my mask on. I'm like, why am I talking with my mask on? I don't normally do that. But we're, we're at a time now where we are, we are studying spiritual growth. That's all we're doing for this year. All we're doing for this year is talking about spiritual growth. What does it mean to grow spiritually? If we're believers, we're supposed to be growing spiritually. So what does that look like? And we studied the book of James, and James was very helpful in uh, helping us understand what it means to grow spiritually. He gave us a great overview. And that overview was so helpful. He talked about so many things. And so for the rest of the year, we're just going to be looking at specific aspects of what it means to grow spiritually. What does that look like in our lives? And so in the coming months, we're going to be talking about love, how we need to grow in love, how we need to grow in the Christian mind, how we need the power of the Holy Spirit. So all these themes that we're going to be talking about. But in God's providence, we've entered into the Easter season, and now this provides us with an opportunity to look at spiritual growth from a different perspective, and that is from the, uh, from the perspective of what is foundational. What is foundational to the Christian life, the Christian growth? It is the doctrine of resurrection and atonement. And we're going to look at that over the next three weeks. And today we begin with John chapter 11. We're going to be looking at three things over the next three weeks. The effects of sin and how the doctrine of the resurrection helps us to deal with the effects of sin. Next week we're going to look at how the doctrine of the resurrection releases us from the power of sin. And we're going to look at John 4, the woman at the well. Then we're going to look at how the doctrine of the resurrection and um, the atonement helps us to live in community together. So we're going to look at the early church, um, Acts 2, the early church community, and how the preaching of the resurrection was so vital for this community and led to an explosion, a revolution within this community. Now, in your bulletin, I have that we're only going to read from 17 to 27. I have to confess my folly there. We are going to read that, but we're actually going to begin at verse number one because there's a context here, a rich, deep context that we need to process as we go through um, this passage. So just to be clear today, we're going to be looking at how the doctrine of the resurrection and atonement, how does, this, how does that doctrine um, uh, speak to us today? John chapter 11, verse 1, down to verse number 27. Hear now the words of the Lord. <clears throat> now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, but two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. And Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Praise the Lord. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God, who is coming into the world. Well, all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's pray. Oh, Holy Spirit, you are here. You are here because you have instructed us that wherever two or three are gathered, you are in the midst. But Holy Spirit, help us not just to know this cognitively. Help us to know this experientially. Help us to sense your presence. Help us to feel the effects of your presence, liberty, healing, truth, freedom, power, holiness. This is how you know, this is how we know you are present. Holy Spirit, now give us ears to hear and eyes to see. May we, your people, drink deeply from the fountain of your word that we may be healed, 
that we might be empowered to heal others. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Well, in this passage, Jesus says something incredibly profound in verse number 25. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. That's the seventh and final statement that Jesus gives of the I am statement, which also leads to the seventh and final sign that Jesus gives of his deity and who he is. And that statement, I am the resurrection of the life, Jesus saying that he is the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. This statement ushered in a revolution, a spiritual revolution, unlike anything else the world has ever seen. This spiritual revolution of the resurrection and the life is what the early church held on to and sustained them. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he said that if Christ be not raised, our faith is in vain. All of us are still in our sins. Why would Paul say that? Because of the doctrine of the resurrection. He understood what it meant. That if Christ did not raise from the dead, Paul said it himself, might as well we eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. What is he saying there? He's saying, might as well we become heathenists. Might as well we all just leave church and go out and live however we want and do whatever we want. Because the doctrine of the resurrection tells us that we can't do that. You cannot be neutral in the face of the doctrine of the resurrection. It is such a revolutionary statement that Paul says if it's not true, if you don't believe it's true, our faith is meaningless. Your faith is meaningless. You might as well go live as a heathenist. Not only that, but Jesus. Remember when Jesus was resurrected? What did he say? He said, all power was given unto me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go. Go in light of my resurrection. He prophesied his resurrection, death, burial, and resurrection five times. Five times. On the road uh, to Emmaus, when he met some disciples, he says, oh, you people, you're still so slow of heart. Don't you know that Jesus Christ died and rose again? It was the doctrine of the resurrection. It was the doctrine of the resurrection that empowered women in the early church. One of the first people, set of people that proclaimed the glorious news of the resurrection was Mary Magdalene. When she saw that Jesus had raised from the dead, she ran and told everyone that she knew. It was the doctrine of the resurrection that turned a coward like Peter into a bold proclaimer of the gospel. It was the doctrine of the resurrection that turned a doubter like Thomas into a believer. It was the message of the resurrection preached by all the preachers in the early church that led to thousands upon thousands upon thousands joining the church. It was the doctrine of the resurrection that the early Christian martyrs used as the hope for not just this life and the life to come. What made them stare down the jaws of the lions? What made them go into the furnaces and the flames? What made them not recant even in the face of the blade of their executioner? What made them go on even though they saw their children starving and dying? What was it that powered the faith early on? It was the doctrine of the resurrection. 
But can I tell you that the doctrine of the resurrection wasn't just for them back there? Because sometimes we believe that. We read our Bibles and we think, oh, that was great for them that the power of God was with them and they did all these wonderful things and they overcame sin and thousands of people joined the church. Wasn't that good for them? Can I tell you, it's also good for us. Jeremy Camp, one of my favorite uh, Christian artists, wrote a song several years ago. And the song had a refrain that the same power that lifted Jesus from the grave, the same power that worked in the early church, lives in us. That power lives in you. Christian, you don't have to be powerless. Because the same doctrine of the resurrection that powered the early church powers us here today. And it is that doctrine, it is that, uh, the doctrine of the resurrection and atonement, it's that reality of the power of the resurrection that gives us power today to overcome sin in this world and the effects of sin. And that's what I want to talk about briefly today. How exactly, Pastor Dennis, does the doctrine of the resurrection, what Jesus did 2,000 years ago, how does it affect me today? How can I draw upon that power today? Well, this passage tells us. The first thing I want to look at, and, and I think we have to understand from this passage, is the effects of sin. What is the effect of sin on our life? You have to understand that for you, before you understand how the power of the resurrection actually released us from that power of sin. This passage talks about the effect of sin on our life by talking about death. Remember I said that this was the final sign that Jesus gives. His power over death. That's why he said, I am the resurrection of life. Why, why death? Why does the death of Lazarus set the stage for such a powerful revolutionary statement and Jesus' last miracle? The reason why that's the case is because death is the final enemy. And in fact, death is our most powerful enemy. How do we know this to be the case? You all remember Genesis 3. In fact, every Jew knew the story of Genesis 3 and almost every Christian need to understand the power that's in Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? Death. That's where death comes from. God told Adam, said, Adam, the day you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. Those two words, surely die in Hebrew, is the strongest warning that you can ever give. It literally means you will die a double death. You could even take it a step further, and, and he, God was telling Adam, the day you ate of that fruit, you will die multiple times. And can I tell you that Adam died multiple times? Adam lived long enough to see the effects of his sin. He saw it when his children were fighting, and eventually Cain killed Abel. He saw it as the generation sprung up, and saw how they walked away from God. He saw it every time he argued with Eve. He saw it every time a death happened. He saw the effects of sin in his time. And it broke Adam's heart. I can't imagine how Adam felt when Cain killed Abel. Or when he saw the earth littered with the graves 
of all of his relatives that perished. That must have killed Adam. That one sin sent a seismic shock throughout all of creation that Adam witnessed. And by the way, that is being felt even today, and we can see the effects of sin even in this passage. Look at the passage with me and see all of the effects of sin. First of all, in verse number two, it mentions that, um, that Mary, uh, who anointed uh, Jesus, um, whose brother was ill. The, one of the effects of, si of sin is illness, of sickness. All of us inside you today at some point in our lives, we're sick. Maybe we are sick. Maybe we have chronic illnesses. All of that comes as a result of sin. But not only that, notice the grief and sorrow. Go to verse number 31 and 33 of John 11. Another effect of sin is grief and sorrow. When the Jews who were with her in the house, they were consoling her. Why were they consoling her? Because she was in grief. She was in sorrow. Notice also, drop down to verse number 33. When Jesus came in, Jesus saw Mary weeping. Mary was overcome by sorrow because there was nothing she can do. She couldn't help her brother. Notice, in fact, in verse number three, the desperation. In verse number three, it says this. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. These are the effects of sin. They bring illness. They bring death. They bring sorrow. They bring desperation. They bring anxiety, fear. All of these things that we struggle with today are the result of the fall. And all of us know this, right? This, we live under the effects of sin each and every day. All of us who are parents have felt the hopelessness and the helplessness of when our children are sick. There are many of you inside here today have sick relatives today that understand this concept. We live with misery each and every day. And now, the question then is how do we deal with misery? How do we deal with the effects of the fall? How do we deal with, with, uh, with the, just the frustration and anger and depression that sometimes the fall brings? How do we deal with this? Well, there are some of us, some of us, ignore it some of us ignore it and the way we ignore it is by pursuing pleasure right that's one way our society deals with the effects of the fall they ignore it completely they pursue pleasure they pursue fun why do you think we have so many theme parks in the united states yes it's because of money but also what does it do it helps us to Forget the pain and struggle of this world. Why do you think everyone is trying to get you to have fun and to enjoy life? What's the purpose behind that? It's so you could forget that life is hard. But the gospel doesn't tell us to ignore the effects of sin. What else do people do? Well, some people have a stoic approach to the effects of sin. Keep a stiff upper lip. Many of the new atheists are like this. If you watch a new atheist, they'll tell you, oh, you know what? So what? We die. Get over it. 
That's what they'll tell you. If they came to your funeral, they would say, why are you crying? This happens to everybody. So what your child died? So what your mother died? Who cares? Everyone dies. Just get over it. But beloved, is that what we're called to do? Keep a stiff upper lip? By the way, is that what Jesus does in this passage? Notice John eleven thirty five. The Bible says here that Jesus wept. Jesus was genuinely grieved and sorrowed as a result of sin. He wasn't a stoic. In fact, in this passage, Jesus shows you exactly what he thinks of pain and sorrow. Verse number 33, he says, When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had, who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Those, that statement there not only expresses his grief, his deep love and grief over sin, but the fact that he hates what sin does to us as his people. So far from being a stoic, Jesus was deeply moved and deeply grieved by the effects of sin. But there's another thing that we typically do, and that's we become nihilist. In other words... We become despondent. And this is where so many people are at, where they take this idea that nothing matters anymore. They've experienced so much pain, so much suffering in the world that they just, they just become bitter and angry. By the way, this is Naomi, right? This is Naomi in the book of Ruth. When, when Naomi comes out of the land, she tells Ruth and all of her uh, uh, siblings, she says, look, uh, leave me, get away from me. I don't want to be called Naomi anymore. I don't want to be called Pleasant anymore. I want to be called Mara. I want to be called Bitter. Why is she saying that? Because she had lost her home. She had lost her husband. She had lost her children. She had lost everything that mattered to her. And she says, it's all awful. God has dealt bitterly with me. Do not call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. This is where so many people are today. As a pastor, I don't meet many people who try to ignore sin. I don't meet that many people who try to act like stoics when it comes to sin. But I meet so many people who are bitter at the results of the fall. In fact, if you were to ask me, Pastor Dennis, why do people leave the faith? It's because of this. They become bitter and angry. The torrent of sin and the effects of sin in their life leaves them like Naomi. They're just bitter and they become angry and frustrated at God. But what does the gospel say? What does the gospel call us to do? If the gospel, you, you might be looking at me and say, well, Pastor Dennis, the gospel doesn't call me to ignore the effects of sin. The gospel doesn't call me to be a stoic. The gospel doesn't call me to be a nihilist. What does the gospel call you to do? The gospel calls you to do what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul says when he looks at the effects of sin and death. He says, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's what Paul says. Now, what is Paul doing there? When he says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? What is he doing there? He's taunting death. That's what he's doing there. He's taunting death. Now, some of you say, well, pastor, isn't that a little bit irreverent? Why would you taunt death? You know, I remember as a, as a kid when I played sports, um, I, I was a bench warmer. But at the same time, I played sports. 
right? And when I played sports, one of the things that we would do all the time was taunt the other team. I loved it. Now, look, look, look. I'm not advocating taunting. Coach, I'm not advocating taunting. Taunting is bad. Taunting is sin. It's wrong. But, boy, we did it. You know? Like, we did it. We were so happy. We were like, na, 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 na. Na, 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 na. Hey, hey, hey. Goodbye. And it was wonderful. Like, we taunted the other team. Why do we taunt the other team? By the way, kids, again, don't taunt. That's, that's sin. But, 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 but why do we taunt the other team? Why did we taunt the other team? We taunted the other team because we knew the victory was already ours. That's why we taunted the other team. Look, look, look. Nobody taunts when they're down 50 points and losing. Nobody does that. That's ridiculous. And nobody taunts when the victory is kind of unsure. We, that's not when we taunt. We taunt when we know the victory is short. And also, we taunt even when the game is not over yet. But we know victory is at hand. And what Paul is doing here in, Rome, in 1 Corinthians 15 is he's taunting death because he knows the resurrection of Jesus Christ has claimed victory for us as God's people. And so that's why we taunt death. That's why we taunt suffering. That's why we taunted. We taunted because we know the victory's won. And all of God's people should be taunting death the same way because we know the greatest enemy, the most powerful enemy we have has been vanquished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we taunt it. And by the way, this helps explain what Jesus is doing in this passage. Jesus does some things that are just it's kind of erratic. You're like, what, Jesus, what are you doing? Look, look, look at this passage. Look at all the things that Jesus does that just seem mind-boggling. In verse number four, he hears that Lazarus is sick, and he says, this illness does not lead to death. And you're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? He's sick. What is Jesus doing here? He's taunting death. He's like, this isn't going to kill Lazarus. He's taunting it. Notice with me also in verse number six. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Why would he do that? If you love somebody and you can help them and they're sick, why wouldn't you flee to them to help them? What is he doing there? The only way you could understand this passage, if you understand that he's taunting sin, he's taunting death, and he's saying death has no power. I have all the power. The victory's already been won. It doesn't matter when I arrive. When I arrive, it's just on time because there's power in me to raise Lazarus from the dead. Why do you think in verse 8 and 10, and I could go on and on. By the way, if you're looking for a Bible study, go through this passage and look at all the ways Jesus is taunting sin and death. It's a glorious study. But look also in verse number 8 and 10, right? He's talking and he's saying, Jesus, if you go to Judea, they'll stone you. And Jesus is saying, what? What are you talking about? I'm a child of light. I, I go wherever I go. Only people who walk in darkness can't go wherever they go. And so he marches boldly into Judea to heal his friend. Why? Because when you know you have the victory, you're not afraid of death. And like I said, I could go on and on, but you get the point. Jesus knows that the victory is in hand. Brothers and sisters, do we know that the victory is in hand? 
Because if you do, why are we acting like we're defeated? We should be taunting death. Now look, the people, all of the people in this story, they didn't understand this. They didn't get this. They didn't understand what Jesus was doing, which leads me to the grounds for taunting death. All of them that are here, even though they love Jesus and they believed in Jesus, they didn't fully understand who Jesus was. You say, Pastor, why would you say that? Look at verse number 14. Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. If they fully understood who Jesus was, why would Jesus still have to do this? Hmm? And here's the reason why. There are so many of us, we know Jesus, we believe in him, but we don't act accordingly. They knew who he was. They, they, they said that. Notice with me also in verse number 21, right? Notice how they know Jesus was, but look at the statements that they're making. Verse number 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Why would she say that if she really and truly believed that Jesus was the resurrection and the life, that he truly was the Messiah, he truly was God. Even the Jews later on in verse number 32, we don't have time now to look for that. They said the same thing. He who healed all of these people, why did he let his friends die? This is the great cognitive dissonance of the Christian faith. That we believe Jesus and who he is, but we don't believe in him. That's what Martin Lloyd-Jones said. That we believe him. We trust him with eternity. But we don't trust him now. It's the greatest disconnect in Christianity that all of us face. We believe that when he died, he'll take us to heaven. But boy, he, we would not trust him with our finances. We believe that when we die... Hey, Jesus, we're going to live with Jesus forever. But we don't trust him when it comes with our relationships. It's, it's this great disconnect. And what does Jesus look at her and say? She said, look at me. Look at me. Who do you think I am? And in Mary and Martha's day, they believed in magicians. Right? They, they, there were people who, for some reason or another, God lent power to. We, we see this all through the Bible. Again, another fascinating study. Why, why, why does Balaam have this access with God? Why does the witch of Endor have this access with God? Why does Pharaoh's um, um, magicians able to turn water into blood? Like, how is that possible? God gave them seemingly some power to be able to do it, but he limited it at a certain time. So in their day, there were people who can do things, cool things. And they thought that Jesus was a magician who had some in with God. They thought that he would come there and do an incantation and make all things right. But Jesus looked at them and said, look, I'm not a magician. I'm the Messiah. And I am not here to do magic. I'm here to perform a miracle. You see, at some point or another, all of us have to ask the fundamental question, who do we believe 
Jesus is. Is he a magician who does magic? Was he a cool prophet that had some in with God? Or is he Messiah? And that question changes your life. Because whatever you believe when you walk out of this church today will radically shape and change your life. If you simply think that Jesus is a cool dude that lived 2,000 years ago and taught us to have peace, love, and harmony, then you're going to live your life like that. But if you believe that he is the risen son of God who came in power and imbued you with power, that changes everything. You can't walk out of this building the same. You can't walk out of this building selfish, living your life however you want. You can't live, walk out of this building unconcerned about what he thinks and what he wants and what he needs. You cannot walk out of this building and go on as if nothing has changed. This changed everything, and everybody understood that. That's why he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He was pointing them to Exodus. When God appeared to, his, um, to Moses, and he said, Moses, take off your shoes. The place that you are standing is holy ground. And Moses had a contact with the great I am. And it changed his life forever. He was 80 years old. By the way. So, you know, sometimes I hear elderly people say, you know, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired. You know, I've done ministry for a long time. I'm just going to hang it up. Moses was 80 and he began his ministry. So you still have plenty more time. That's what I'm saying. Right? You still have plenty more time. 80 years old. And God gave him a new purpose and a new path. That's awesome. But that's not just awesome for Moses. That's awesome for you. And hear me today. You need to wrestle with the question of who do you think Jesus was. Because if you say he's a Messiah and that doesn't change anything in your life, that doesn't cause you to be less selfish, more giving, more loving, then you don't understand who he is. You still think he's a magician that does cool tricks. And when he asked her the question, do you believe this? And she said yes. Then her life and our lives should be radically different. Now, what's the big takeaway? What's the big takeaway? Here's the big takeaway, that you and I, as God's people, we live in light of the resurrection. And because we know who Jesus is, we have the power to taunt the effects of sin. And by the way, Jesus did this. Do you remember when Jesus was in the garden and he was just about to die, crucified, and he was there, and the stress of what he was about to do, the, the weight of what he was about to do had, had come on him. And the Bible says he began to sweat great drops like blood. Possibly he sweat blood. I don't know. But it said he started to sweat and it was like great drops of blood. And, and he was about to give up. Oh, or maybe not, depending on how you read the Bible. But that's not the point. Here's the point. 
Jesus said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. What was he doing there? He was taunting the effects of sin. How do you and I taunt the effects of sin? We do it first and foremost by reminding us of what Jesus has done for us. We taunt sin every time, the effects of sin, every time we come to church, every time we take communion, every time we pray, every time we overcome sin, every time we love our brothers, we're taunting sin because we're saying, even though this world is hard and miserable and filled with pain, I am still going to obey the will of God. That's how we taunt sin, by our faithfulness and our holiness and our commitments to scripture. So when we have, or when we become scared or nervous, or when life becomes hard, we don't give up. We don't cry Mara. We say that he's the I am. He's the Holy One of Israel. And I'm going to keep living. I'm going to keep loving. And I'm going to keep serving. Here, I want to give you some homework. Pick a sin. Pick a sin. I don't know what your sin is. Pick a sin. And this week, taunt it. Taunt it. If it's depression, say, depression, you won't win. Jesus died. He has the victory. If it's anxiety, say, anxiety, you won't win. Because Jesus has the victory. Whatever that sin is, pornography, lying, stealing, doesn't matter what it is. Pick it and taunt it. You could even use the song, na-na-na-na, na-na-na-na, hey-hey-hey, goodbye. Taunt sin. Because in taunting it, we are, taunt, we are boasting in the resurrection. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious reality that the resurrection wasn't just for 2,000 years ago. It's for now. It's for us to deal with the effects of sin now. It's for us to live victorious now. It's for us to boast in Christ now. We are people, we need to hear that because this world is under the effects of sin so strongly and we feel it and we know it. Deliver us, but help us, empower us. Bless us now, your people, in Jesus' name. Amen.